Well, good evening. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. You know, you never hear too much about Zechariah, and then all of a sudden, one Lord's Day, you have it read in the breaking of bread and given at the first service. It's amazing uh, how, how the Spirit of God tends to work. Obviously, this is in mind, and uh, we're going to take a look at it and hopefully finish up uh, the, the book today, this evening. And then, uh, Lord willing, uh, continue to speak after the, the meeting next door. My plan was to go back into Ezra and continue chronologically, but perhaps the Spirit of God has something else that we'll see. Uh, one of the benefits of, um, of having a beard that was so long that it hid my tie was that I could loosen my tie and undo my top button, and nobody knew it. But I'm going to do it anyway today because it feels extra tight. This collar is shrinking. <laughs> if you don't mind, so I don't pass out up here. <coughs> I appreciate it. Uh, one of the things we want to look at in Zechariah today is, as Mark took the meeting this morning and spoke on uh, the second coming of Christ and the order of, e of events uh, that take place, and there are certain passages that we see here in Zechariah that uh, really paint a clear picture of the things that will take place. One of the things I want to bring out is what, is that, what does that mean to us today? And what does that really mean for the Jewish people, the children of Israel? Because one of the things as you think about the Jewish people as a whole, one of the things that they all agree on, if they are truly devout Jews, is that Christ is not the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to do certain things. He's going to lead an army and establish a kingdom and uh, the Jews will be the head of the nations, all the things that we know Christ will do uh, at a second coming. And they assume that uh, when Christ or when their Messiah comes, that he will do these things. We know it's his second coming. They see it as his only coming. Um, one of the things that they don't see in that is the sorrow and the mourning for never having dealt with the true issue that they put the Lord Jesus Christ to death, um, that they gathered him and they brought him before the chief priests, that they said this man is worthy of, of, of death, and they handed him over to the Romans, and the Romans, uh, with the will of the people, executed that judgment, but we remember their statement, uh, his blood be upon us and upon our family. Um, that's something that they're going to have to come to terms with, and we actually see it take place here in Zechariah chapter 12. Um, one of the things we're also going to see is that when this takes place, the entire nation of Israel will be saved. And they're going to come to salvation the same way that anyone here that is a believer in Jesus Christ came to salvation. They're going to look on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was pierced because of their sin, and by faith they're going to accept him, and they're going to trust in him, that that payment was enough to cover their sins. It's going to be the same way we came to faith in Christ. The realization that our sins had to be paid for. And that through the Lord Jesus Christ shed blood at the cross is the only way that we could have our sins covered and paid for. Uh, so when we break in this evening, <coughs> it's three chapters. Uh, there, Two of them are fairly short. One's a little bit longer, but uh, there's not as much in that uh, final chapter. What we're going to look at is... This is one prophecy given. Uh, this is the final burden from Zechariah. 
and as Zechariah points it out, uh, relays this message, we don't know if it was given after the temple was completed. Uh, so we remember the children of Israel come back to the land. They had left off the work. They'd gotten back to the work under the ministry of Haggai. Now they're back building the temple. Um, they've been facing opposition from the outside, and now they're at the point. Uh, we don't know if the temple is complete or not. Um, they could be doing the work, but uh, that's what's going on right now. They have no protection. Um, it's a very small temple compared to what the older folk remember it being. And there is still this feeling of what they're doing may not really matter, may not really be a big deal. How does that relate to us? Well, you may be here on a Sunday evening wondering, does it really matter that I'm here? Does it really matter that uh, we're hearing the Bible taught? Does it really matter that we gather together like this? Um, in the scope of things, how big the world has gotten and the way everything is going, what difference really does it make? And what this prophecy is going to do for the children of Israel is it's going to encourage them and say, yes, it does matter. Um, because in the end, there's going to be a vindication that takes place. Uh, in the end, this is the only time that you're actually investing in your eternity as a whole here. Uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be more conformed to the image of him. Uh, to grow closer together. To partake of this opening, uh, open reading of the word of God as a family. Uh, together here as brothers and sisters. This is a great opportunity. And so, yes, it, it does matter, and the Lord is here. That's the only reason it matters. Uh, so as we break in, we're going to read the first chapter, first chapter 12, <clears throat> and then we'll comment and we'll continue as we go. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord, in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day sh there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. 
and the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. You say that sounds familiar if you were here this morning. Uh, you, you, you heard most of that read. One of the things that we look at is uh, this prophecy is going to deal with the effects that the people had on the Lord. We're going to see in chapter 13 blessings that come from it and also God's work against the Lord in it. So here we have this human perspective. The, the emphasis is looking upon on, on him whom they have pierced, something that they did. In chapter 13, we're going to see something that God is going to do. Uh, so what we see here, <coughs> just in the first verse, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him, uh, trying to establish really the, the strength and power of God that is speaking. Uh, somebody that stretches forth the heavens, somebody that lays the foundation. And one of the things that they include in this is the God that forms the spirit of a man in him. Uh, the importance of the distinguishing of our body, spirit, and soul, the three-part being. Uh, we have something that uh, the other uh, animals and things like that do not have, this spirit that has been given to us. Uh, this is something that God himself forms and something that he holds uh, uh, very highly. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Uh, what does that tell us? That tells us that there's going to be a bunch of uh, people camped out trying to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. Why is that important right now? Well, because as Zechariah is speaking to these people, they have no defenses. They have no wall. They have no army. They have no protection. Uh, that would be a, a very scary thing to hear that uh, eventually there's going to be th all the nations gathered around uh, outside here, and they're going to want to come in and destroy you. Um, that's basically what, what's taking place here. This is something that we'll see, though. It comes up here in verse 3 and carries out through the rest of these three chapters. In verse 3, it says, And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Uh, in that day, uh, is going to be coming up, uh, I think, 16 or so times in these next three chapters. And it's something that, as Mark has been preaching on uh, the end time events, that we see come up a lot, even in the New Testament. In that day, the day of the Lord, uh, there's certain statements and phrases that give a clear indication of what the author is talking about. Um, so no, don't fear, it's going to be in that day, it's a, the time ahead, in that day, when everyone's gathered around, he says that he'll make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people. Uh, this idea of a burdensome stone is something that if you were to try to lift it, it would injure you in lifting it. Uh, you couldn't lift it. It would be something that would be so difficult to lift that it would cause uh, severe injury severe pain and it says it says that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it um, no matter if everyone in the earth 
went to attack Jerusalem and Judah, God would protect them. That's what God is saying here. It doesn't matter. Everyone in the earth, put them there, and God's going to protect his people. When you look at Israel today, one of the things that they're faced with is they're surrounded by a group of people that want to attack them. Uh, they want more land. They, they, they want to be rid of the Jewish people. They just want to take it and, and kick them out and, and honestly probably annihilate them is their goal. Uh, that's what they're facing right now. Instead of turning to the God of the scriptures, they turn to the UN, they turn to foreign governments, and they're looking for protection. We need somebody to come and help protect us because we fear all of these people. Yet clearly in God's word, we see that uh, the nation of Israel will be around at the end, and we see that no matter how many people gathered against it, that God would defend them. This would be promises that, uh, as believers, uh, we would stand on and that we would uh, really hold God to his word and pray according to these things. They have taken a different route, and that's why we assume that they have so much turmoil there. They, they, they have not yet turned and, and, and called upon uh, God to defend them in any of these things. And as we know, most of Israel today... Um, does not even believe in a personal God, uh, does not even believe in a, in a God you can have a relationship with if they believe in any God at all. Uh, for most of them actually are atheists in their leanings, um, the state of the nation today, uh, unfortunately. So what we have here <coughs> would encourage the people, as Zechariah is speaking for them. They're laboring in something they don't feel maybe is worth it, um, they have no defenses, yet they're speaking of all the earth gathered against them to besiege Jerusalem, and God has basically calmed them and saying, I'll protect you. Verse 4, 4 to 9, In that day, again, in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So there's this, uh, this distinction being made between those that are in tents on the outskirts of the land and those that are actually in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, God does not want them to mistake the fact that he's just talking about the city. Uh, he's talking about the people. Uh, they might have this idea that uh, I might have to get rid of my brother so that I can be in Jerusalem and he can't fit. Um, he's saying the people, Judah, the tents, outskirts, all of his people. Uh, so we have here <coughs> in verse 8, in that day, or uh, verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Uh, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Everything that's being said would make you think that um, 
this is victory over the enemy. This is a, a joyous event. This is everything that the nation has looked for, that all the nations of the world would come against them and they would destroy them all and be victorious. Yet we see that when the actual event takes place, there's not this rejoicing. Um, there's not a celebration. Uh, there doesn't even seem to be any happiness, uh, really, in this event right here. Because as they look upon him whom they have pierced, it says they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Can you imagine? And I only can think back of, of certain wars and, and victories and things like that. And um, having grandparents that fought in World War II. And, and having been victorious. That that victory would be met with mourning. And bitterness. And weeping. As though you've lost something. As though not just something. A son. And not just a son. But your firstborn son. I am blessed right now with having two sons. I could not imagine losing either of them. And I couldn't imagine the mourning that would follow in losing one of them. To think that that is the response they have to the final victory over all the nations that have come against them. Why does that happen? Because when the victory finally comes and the Messiah appears and they realize that it's this Jesus that they crucified all those years ago. They'll think of all that family, all those relatives throughout the centuries that were Orthodox Jews that had no faith in this Christian Messiah, Jesus, and they'll mourn a realization that after all this time, they were wrong. I want you now to think of friends and family. This is easy for me. And think of all the time that you spend with somebody that's lost, somebody that's not a believer, that's close to you. The morning that will take place when they stand before the Lord at the great white throne. And as the punishment is ordered and the person goes to their eternity, there's a moment when they think back on how close they were to the truth of the God's word and the gospel. That perhaps for me, in the same household, there was one that knew the Lord and could have told them and did tell them and they didn't listen. The mourning that takes place here is something that the Jewish people uh, completely write off. Uh, when, when the Messiah comes, everything will be great. We'll get everything we've ever wanted, and we'll be the head of the nations. Uh, they skip over all of the, the suffering, the mourning, the moments like this that don't seem to quite add up, uh, the fulfillment of all these things, and yet this great despair. That's going to be the reaction. It's written in God's word. When the Lord appears, this is how they're going to feel. It's just the way it is right now. When the Lord appears for us, 
how are we going to feel? Because the Lord's coming again. And just like the children of Israel, they don't know what time. For the church, we don't know what time we're going to meet him in the air. And when he does appear, and when we do see him, what's our first feeling? That instant when you realize it's time and we're going. Just let that sit in our minds, perhaps, just this week. It still is uh, te technically the beginning of a new year. And if you have not made any resolutions, this is a resolution. To live every day as if the Lord's coming today. The Lord came right now. What do I want to be found doing? What do I want to be found thinking? And the fact that we want to be ready. Oh, all those things that we've been putting off, all those awkward conversations, all those temptations perhaps that we've been playing with or toying with or getting a little too close to. Uh, imagine that uh, temptation. You're getting there, getting there, just about to sin, and the Lord appears. Caught red-handed. Noah does this thing now where he's uh, climbing on the couch in the back. We have a back room, and we have a couch, and then there's a countertop right next to it, and then there's a bookshelf. So the genius of my son, he climbs on the couch, and then he climbs on the shelf, and then he takes all the books off the bookshelf, and he then proceeds. Once he gets them all kind of in good grip, he throws them off the countertop. And when I walk back there and say, hey, he could be in mid-throw, and then he'll just put it back down. Like, I wasn't actually going to do it this time. He's got this attitude where he's got caught. We don't want to be like that when the Lord comes. We don't want to be like that when the Lord appears. Unfortunately for Israel, this, this is the, <clears throat> this is what it'll be like. We see the great power, though, that God has bestowed upon them, in particular, as individuals and as a nation. Uh, the mightiness, it says, uh, it says in that day in verse 8 shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David and the house of David shall be as God as the angel of the Lord before them. Uh, which is interesting because it will be uh, because the Lord will be there and he is the house of David. But even the weakest among them will be as David. And when we think of uh, David he is the, uh, the great hero of the, the Jewish nation. Uh, so even the feeblest among them will be like David. Uh, get just again in verse 10, we're going to just read it again because it's a, an amazing verse. It says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and he shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Verse 11, and that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddon, and the land shall mourn every family apart. Uh, this uh, verse 11, in that day, uh, the, the mourning of, of Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddon may sound familiar from Josiah, uh, the king at the time when he goes to battle against Pharaoh Necho, and uh, Pharaoh Necho tells him, basically, I got nothing to do with you. Why don't you uh, stay where you're at? Uh, Egyptians are going to battle the Babylonians. Um, Josiah does not listen. He goes disguised into the battle, and he is killed. 
Um, and there was a great mourning because Josiah was a very loved king, one of the good kings. So that's the, the comparison that they're drawing. And it says here that in verse 12, And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, and the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. This isn't going to be something where it's just the leaders that do this. Uh, this is something that every individual is going to come to terms with. Uh, the fact that they were responsible for putting to death their own Messiah. Um, they're going to have to face up to that. They're going to have to look it in the eye and say, yes. Similar to when we got saved. There was a point in time when we looked at our sin and we looked at the Savior and we said, my sin killed him. My sin put him on that cross. And my sin is bad enough to send me to hell. And the only way I can escape it is by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That he is indeed that true son of God. That he paid the penalty and that the work is finished. It's the, the same exact thing takes place here for the Jewish people. They're going to have to come to terms with this. Um, and one of the things that all the names that are mentioned, David, you might see as a royal uh, family. Uh, Nathan, uh, we see, was a prophet at that time. The prophets, Levi, the, the priests. And Shimei would have been the, uh, a teacher at the time, so the, the teachers. But then it includes all families. This is something that goes throughout all the, the, the whole nation. Everybody as an individual is going to have to come to terms with this. <coughs> so chapter 13, we get out of kind of the mourning that takes place, and then we get into these great blessings that come. Uh, let's go ahead and read. It's only nine verses. It says, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin, and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land, and it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are, those, what are these wounds in thine hands or on thy forearms? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. And what we have here after the, the chapter 12 is we have this idea of cleansing that takes place for the, the people. Um, verse 1, we see that a fountain is opened up. And the fountain is opened up for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Um, 
one of the things that, that hinders many uh, Jewish people from coming to know the Lord is that they don't believe in his sin nature. Uh, most of them do not. Uh, they believe that uh, sin is something that you do and you just simply uh, confess it and repent from it now because there's no sacrifices to be offered. Uh, so they have found a way to, to get around pretty much uh, most of the um, Old Testament law in such a way by saying um, sin is something that you just uh, you try to be obedient. And if you do sin, you just repent and you confess and that you're forgiven. Uh, so it's very hard to convince a Jewish person of this uh, sin nature, uh, that we are just simply sinners. Uh, what we have here is that this fountain is opened up for sin and for uncleanness. It's going to wash away everything. Um, this is something that we see the Lord doing uh, for us. Uh, it, it wipes away everything once we're saved. One of the things that's... <coughs> Interesting is uh, it's been years now, but I spoke on the Feast of Jehovah. I, I spoke on the first four feasts, and the first four feasts deal with this basically time up to where we're at now. Um, we have the uh, Passover uh, as the sacrifice of the lamb and the redemption of those that uh, are found with the blood upon them. Uh, you have a Feast of Unleavened Bread, this holiness that we're supposed to live by, the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, the resurrection of uh, the Lord, and then we see the day of Pentecost, the establishment of the church, the coming down of the Holy Spirit, and the Jew and Gentile becoming one in the body of Christ. Uh, after this, we have a break, and then you have the Feast of Trumpets. All the nation will be gathered together in one spot, and then you have the Day of Atonement, and the Day of Atonement was the day that all sin was taken away from Israel. Um, this ultimately is that fulfillment uh, when all the sin will be taken away from the land and from the nation. Um, in one day, the whole nation is saved. Uh, something that, why is that important to us? Uh, that's a, uh, why, why do we care? Uh, it comes up a lot. You know, you talk about the nation Israel here, and then you get somebody that says, that's Israel, who really cares? You know, we're the church, and when this happens, we won't even be there. So why does it matter? Well, I'll give you an example. My wife loves to open gifts one at a time. And one at a time where you have to see what everyone gets. You got to watch their facial expression, uh, the joy that they have when they open the gifts. It doesn't matter that there's 70, 80 gifts over there for 20 different people and it's going to take three hours. That's what she wants to do and she likes it. And we do that because I like that she likes it. I think it's foolish and a waste of time and um, I can see what they got after everything's all open but she likes it so we do it when we think of how much scripture is weighted on this period of time when the nation finally turns back to the Lord when we think of the rejection that he's put up with for this long constantly calling out to all the world the joy that the Lord will have when this day comes should make us happy. It really should. Think of how the Lord has longed for this day to come. So we may think it's foolish. We may not be there, all the above. But we like it because he likes it. One of the things that comes up here in this portion 
as this fountain is opened up for uncleanness, uh, it's going to do away with all the idols, all the false prophets. Um, Verses 3 to 6 that speak of the false prophets in that day uh, seems to be the, the, the what it's talking about. There are some that have tried to attribute verse 6 to the person of the Lord. Um, it, doesn't ju- it, it just doesn't seem to really fit in my mind as I go through the passage. I'm not saying it doesn't say that. I'm just saying I don't see it that way. I could be wrong. That's a perfectly good explanation. Uh, but the way that this portion looks out or plays out, we see that uh, they're getting rid of false prophets. These false prophets that had identified themselves would have used, uh, we see in prophets of Baal, things like that, that they used mutilation as a means to show how serious they are about the, the prophecies that they're given, that, oh, this is really a, a serious person. He's willing to cut himself. Uh, so they're going to ask them, you know, are you a prophet? No, I'm a husbandman. Well, what about your wounds? Oh, I, I got those at my buddy's house. Um, that's not from what you think. So that just seems to be the thought flow uh, for me. So like I say, could be wrong, but that's just uh, what I say. Ultimately, the thing that he's saying is that there won't be any more false teaching. There won't be any more false worship. It's going to be done away with, and they're going to know who their God is, and they're going to know how to worship him. And they're not going to be fooled by anything else. So verse 7, this is the divine side of what is taking place. Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Uh, The sword is a picture of judgment, uh, the execution of judgment that's taking place. We see it in references even in the New Testament. Uh, about um, uh, nations and governments, things like that, uh, that they do not wield the sword uh, in vain, uh, that they are given a task to execute the the justice of the land and that it's something that they're supposed to do. And um, so we see here that (coughs) all of the sin, all of the uncleanness, how is God going to do away with all of these things? How is God going to cleanse the nation? How is this fountain going to be opened up? How do these blessings come? God says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It's going to fall on his shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that we may have some that say, well, that could mean a number of things. And then the next line is, and against the man that is my fellow. Uh, We might take that fellow as as companion or equal, uh, somebody that is in in the same line as the one that is speaking, and the one that is speaking is the Lord of hosts. We see this fulfilled (coughs) in a form with the disciples Uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ is taken and uh, we see the sheep scattered. uh, We see the Lord quoting this verse actually uh, in the Gospels. What this is really going in depth speaking of as a whole is the nation as a whole. Um, He's going to once the Lord Jesus Christ was smitten, we see that the, the Jewish people since AD 70 had been scattered. And now we see this this coming together, and that's why we see end-time events taking place, getting closer, uh, should keep us more on our toes. It says in verse 8, shall come to pass that in the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire. And I will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. 
I will say it is my people. They shall say the Lord is my God. Uh, remember, uh, now it escapes me what book this is in. If it was in Hosea, lo, ami, where um, they are not my people. The Lord says they are not my people. Um, we have a, a turning back here where he will claim them as his people and they will claim uh, the Lord God as their God. One of the things that's interesting, this is where we get the fact that two-thirds of the nation will be killed um, during this time. And the, the, the question is, well, um, you know, well, who's going to be saved? Well, the ones that survive are the ones that are going to be saved. Uh, we see in Revelation that the ones that survive are those that, um, you know, are, are holding closely to the word of God in some form. Uh, many will be killed um, just right off the bat. But we see here that as he's bringing them in, that only a third will survive. And they'll be refined as silver is refined. And he will try them as gold is tried. They're going to go through the judgment. So the great tribulation is the judgment of God against the, the world. And we see that it is also this thing that takes place to bring an ultimate end to his timeline with Jerusalem and with Israel. So as they, the Lord has gone up, he has take, gathered his church, uh, we see this tribulation period of time. They go through the fire. They're going to be refined as silver and gold is refined. And when they come out on the other side, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced and they will be saved. So they're going to go through this judgment of the great tribulation. Uh, one of the things we don't believe as the church going through this judgment of tribulation. <clears throat> so we're going we're gonna to push through uh, this final chapter uh, 14. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Uh, again, we see the condition of the nation when the Lord arrives. Uh, it's not going to be going great for them at this point in time. The people will have come in, uh, women ravished. We see that uh, the city shall be taken. But then the Lord appears, and the Lord is going to appear. It even tells them where he's coming when he comes. Um, they're going to be facing such, you know, we can only imagine what all the nations against them would look like. Um, we can only imagine the fear uh, that would be gripping them at this point in time. And we hope that there would be some Jews that have some knowledge of the scripture at that time. Uh, my eyes would be fixed on the Mount of Olives. 
I would just be, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. The location. Why is the location important? We see that as he steps on that side, there's a huge earthquake and a huge valley that forms and this path that takes place where he can walk right in through the east gate. It even tells him what gate uh, he's going to come through when he comes. Very specific. Uh, this is something that the, the, the Lord spells out in, in great detail. <coughs> and it says, and, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. Uh, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's wine presses. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Uh, that is something we have not seen, uh, Jerusalem safely inhabited. Uh, that's something that they uh, do long for. It says, and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Now it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. They shall lay hold everyone on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is the final feast in the Jewish year. Uh, it was probably the funnest one that they partook in. Uh, they got to get together. There was no mourning. Uh, it was in the Day of Atonement. They all got together and hung out for a week in tents. And they would remember the time when the Lord was with them in the wilderness and the Lord provided all their needs. Uh, it's funny how uh, one group's uh, suffering and persecution, we think of the the people that actually were in the wilderness for 40 years in tents uh, becomes a future people's uh, reminiscing, you know, of, oh, those were the good old days uh, when you could have done that, you know, to be there. And sometimes we tend to have that view of the past. Oh, what it would have been like uh, to be living in those days. Uh, well, we're not living in those days. Uh, we're living now. And so we need to live for right now. And so what we have here, this Feast of Tabernacles, not only will they be keeping, but everyone's going to keep it. Everyone's going to come up, all the nations. It shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Uh, Egypt gets the... Short end uh, in this prophecy. We see that this is a punishment that will fall on anybody 
that doesn't, but Egypt is called out in particular uh, as those that uh, don't come up under the fact that there will be no rain. It says, In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. We see that everything is going to be holy. Uh, there's going to be this, there's not going to be this division between that which is uh, common use and that which is holy use. Uh, everything is going to be holy. Everything is going to be as unto the Lord. Uh, it should be a picture of our lives today. Um, we shouldn't say, you know, this part of my life is the uh, secular non-holy part. And then this part of my life on Sunday and Wednesday is the holy part uh, where I partake. Um, everything that we should do uh, should be holiness unto the Lord. That's the picture that we see uh, the Lord ultimately wanting to get his people to. Uh, so we know it's his, his purpose that we would be that today. What do we take away from this again? Um, it's amazing to read these portions and Think of the Jewish nation as those that are so against uh, the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, we need to pray for the nation of Israel, uh, that there would be those that, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the veil is removed. Uh, and we need to think of ourselves, what do we, we want to be found doing when the Lord appears? Uh, the Lord is coming back. Uh, if we be not with him before he comes, then we will see him when he comes. Um, what do we want to be found doing? And in all these things, the accuracy of, of everything that's been laid out. Uh, we saw so much in Zechariah in the, the first coming that he would come as a lowly, uh, a lowly king riding upon a donkey, uh, that he would be sold uh, for 30 pieces of silver. We saw that uh, he would be pierced through by his people, uh, that even God himself would awake his sword and strike his shepherd, uh, that the sheep would be scattered. There's so many things in the Zechariah that have already taken place, and now we're looking towards uh, the fulfillment of all these things. Uh, may you be encouraged. Uh, may you be built up in your faith as we continue on in the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we think on these things, uh, we do not want to walk away from this just knowing more. Uh, we want to be willing to do more for you. Uh, Father, as we see your heart for your people, we know that your heart for us is the same, that you desire us to be holy, that you desire all sin, all uncleanness to be removed from us. And Father, we're so thankful as we look to our Savior, the one that we know died in our place and suffered for our sins. And as we look upon him, Father, we look upon him with great joy and knowing that our sins have been forgiven. We pray that we would have willing hearts to live for him, uh, to be obedient to your word. That, Father, that the meetings that we've had today um, would lead to a growth in this assembly. Uh, that we would seek to edify one another and encourage one another. So as we depart, please do bless us uh, that we may be a blessing to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.